This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to this episode of Kennedy Saves the World. And once again, I have been tasked with saving you from AI because our robot overlords are going to find a way to get into your brain and say unflattering things to your boss from you and you're going to be fired and canceled in short order. That's what the skeptics would have you believe. I think AI is wonderful and I think that uh, we are, I would say crossroads, but I think there's a better word for it. I think uh, I think we're kind of in purgatory where we're just onboarding with some of this stuff until we get to swap mechanical parts into our brains and limbs so we can live to be a thousand years old, uh, which obviously that's the ultimate goal, because imagine how amazing your skin would look in 950 years. Uh, Dr. Chris Matman joins me. He was on my Fox Business show and he was so uh, intelligent and fascinating that I figured who better to have to talk about AI and the coming doom or the overhyped doom than an international expert in artificial intelligence and machine learning. He is a professor at USC, and he's the author of Machine Learning with TensorFlow. Dr. Matman, welcome to Kennedy Saves the World. Thanks for having me, Kennedy. Yeah, I was envisioning like either the Haley Joe Osment AI or I don't know, the Terminator or I don't know, even something different from that. But is it going to be much less dramatic than the way AI has been depicted in the movies, the films? You know, I think so. I, you know, I tell people I don't I don't think, you know, you and I talked about that. I don't think it's sentient, you know, in any I'd say human definition of that. But, you know, AI is already kind of like everywhere today, uh, you know, and it's not just your Roomba vacuum or, you know, whatever. Uh, it's used all over for automation and a ton of other tasks, you know, we can get into. But, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be more subtle. What happens when there is more AI than human workers? Because I've heard the argument that that will actually be really great because human beings will have so much time for leisure. They won't have to worry about making money because the AI, the the bots and the humanoids will be making money for them. Is that true? Will we be like pimps with a gaggle full of AI whores? (laughs) Digital pimps bored on a cryptocurrency funded island. I don't know. I mean, it's it's. Somewhere in between there, uh, I would say. Uh, so, you know, my feeling, and and this is sort of the big kind of like real issue, I, I would say about that, you know, we think so far in, you know, to the future where the AI is doing everything for us. And and the more immediate, I think, concern, 
you know, and and this has happened in any every major industry is, you know, people can do stuff. They there's still tasks to do even when things are automated. Like and, what? And I well, I'll, I'll give it. Yeah, you know, I'll put it this way. I, I think you know, it's there's a very realistic chance in the next 36 months that um, many truck routes from, say, you know, your former, uh, you know, university home in Southern California to Texas, from Texas to the, the the Midwest, you know, various routes will be automated by you know automatic and uh, sort of self-driving trucks. Um, I think that, you know, and I'm not even talking about the Elon ones. There are other ones, and so there's a very real chance that that'll happen, and so. Um, you know, I've heard various, what should people do with that? You know, should we tell all the truckers to learn to code? Uh, you know, all of these things. Which is not I, a nice, that is a pejorative. That's not a nice thing to say to someone, apparently. It's definitely, and, and you know, even in my field, you know, I think there's a little flippant attitude towards that. And the thing I tell people is there are subject matter experts. Um, what I would do with those truckers is that there's lots of things that they could use to train and provide labeled training data that the machine learning and the AI is hungry for that it can't learn on its own. And that is something, it's an off-ramp, but it's also a very, very important task that those truckers can be doing. And we should be working ahead ethically to do with them, to get their knowledge, to get their how-tos, to get their, you know, hey, this is what happens on this particular stop in the weather. Here are things that you should look out for. Here are that you know, we don't have the granularity or just data density or temporalness or things like that. And that's the type of great knowledge they could be providing, that subject matter expert knowledge. So Michio Kaku, the uh, string field, the string theory expert, um, the theoretical physicist said that human beings will always be necessary because we are pattern makers. And that is something that AI can't do. What does he mean by that? Well, I, I think part of the things that he means, um, it's it's almost ideating or, you know, and what he's talking about is pattern makers is almost like creators. It's like the modern, you know, talk of creators. And so um, one thing that the AI, uh, you know, let's just take AI art in a different domain. One thing, you know, there's all this hoopla about Dolly, uh, you know, which is uh, Google's model. There's also something called stable diffusion, which is a variant of it in which the AI has been fed all of the imagery, you know, on the internet. And it dreams up things that we prompt it to. So I can say, Howard the Duck, um, you know, wearing a USC uniform, dunking on the UCLA basketball team. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't think of that for any reason. But regardless, you know, I could give it that prompt and the AI would, uh, you know, use all of the, you know, imagery and things like that, that it's been ingested. And it knows language too, because we've also ingested books, the internet, news, you know, things from Fox, things from other CNN, other sources. We've, we've ingested all of these things. And what that illustrates to his point is that the AI isn't thinking of that on its own. We're prompting it. And this gets back to my point. That's the type, you know, you have AI, I'm sorry, you have artists and digital artists now who have realized that their next sort of gold rush, you know, and things like that is to get good at typing in these prompts and figuring out, you know, what the prompts can actually do. Um, you know, you can get, you can do distance. You can say how far away it is. You can say in the vein of a Rembrandt, you know, and it'll grab those stylistic properties. You can say, you know, with a dark mood, think Christian Bale, you know, you can say things like that. 
And it'll pick up on all of those things and use that to create. So that's the one thing the AI can't exactly do all on its own is think. And, uh, you know, pattern pattern makers and pattern creators, I think, is what he's talking about from a creation perspective. Well, I think that's fascinating. But what about evil pattern makers? What about uh, someone who gets a hold of trucker AI and says, uh, drive into a mall and hit as many fleshy meat sacks as you can? You know, that's hard to protect against, Kennedy. And I'll just I'll just say this. Um you know, uh, there was a conference in uh, open source and I worked a long time in open source, which is the development of kind of like free and open software and sharing it and things like that. And there was this sort of mantra in that field for a long time as it relates to the Department of Defense, where I've also done a lot of work in which they would say, well, hey, you open source people, you know, isn't showing the source code um, to like the bad guys going to allow them to figure out kind of like where to hack it? Um, and isn't that bad, you know, for all the reasons that you stated. And, uh, you know, the, the thing I would say to them is the thing that a general at the military open source uh, software summit said years ago, in which he basically said, look, you know, open source is saving lives because, yes, while the hackers could see some of those bugs or they could get early things, we could also see it. We could also, you know, protect our software ahead of time on it. We could also get access in ways and patch it and do vulnerabilities and things like that long before. So the reality is, you know, you can kill someone with a spoon. I wouldn't recommend it, but you know, there's all sorts of nefarious ways that you can use mundane tools and, and so on. And so I'm just not sure we can stop that. But what I am sure of is the potential, the better potential to do good with those types of capabilities. All right. We got more of this interview after this. Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know... You're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Are there more good people than bad people? And is there more goodness than badness? Is the ratio on our side? I think it is. I mean, I, you know, I, not just even in the West or the U.S. or, you know, America. I, I, I think in general, the ratio of good people is is much higher th than that of bad people. It's yeah, I almost I almost attribute it to like loud minorities that you hear maybe this will be you know i don't know apropos or whatever but like loud minorities that you hear in like 
there's this big thing about institutional slacks. You know, Slack is this messaging tool. Corporations have deployed it. You know, there have been famous issues of it, like with the New York Times, where all their reporters, you know, go and just complain about management. But it's extended to many industries, you know, not just, you know, reporters or journalists or things like that. Lots of companies have this. And, you know, sometimes I think the C-suite of, of corporations, they look at that and they say, well, gosh, you know, having is, does everybody hate us? You know, all they ever do is complain in these things. Um, the thing I would say there is that sometimes the smaller number, you know, the, the minority are very loud in some cases. And so it feels like there's more of them. I I, I believe, at least personally, that there are more, many more uh, good, good people than them. So I think that's certainly evident in politics. But I want to move um, back to our biology and how conceivably realistically in the fairly short term. So if you have someone who has um, an inflammatory brain condition like Alzheimer's or dementia and they're losing their cognitive capabilities, how in five or 10 years will AI be able to help people regain their cognitive function? Yeah, well, so in the following ways. Um, so so when people ask me about AI and do we have a Terminator yet, and this is going to relate, so bear with me, um, I tell them no. And like you and I talked about, you know, sentience, no, I don't think here yet or whatever. But one thing the AI sure as heck can do is it does tasks much better than humans in many cases and in a variety of very important tasks as it relates to it. Because AI most of what we're talking about nowadays for AI isn't the traditional statistical AI in which we draw a number line and we try and estimate what the next point on that line is or draw a curve of best fit, those types of predictions. What we've actually done and what science and technologists have done is that they've looked at the brain. They've looked at your visual cortex in your eye, Kennedy, or that of many, many people. And they said, oh, we figured out how the eye works. You know, this they've known this for 20, 30 years. They said, well, it actually scans left to right in patches of sort of five by five pixels. It uses that to develop kind of an initial set of features, maybe curves, you know, maybe lines. Those lines and curves, you know, then become kind of secondary features, noses, eyes, then they become whiskers. Ah, it's a cat. Okay, so we actually have a model that works just like the eye works. In 2014, Baidu published a paper, the Chinese search engine on, called Deep Speech. And what they successfully did that point did at that point was they modeled the auditory system um, in an area called automated speech recognition in the way that we hear uh, uh, we hear sounds and we translate them into letters, and those letters translate into words, and those words translate into meaning. So. We've done a really good job of monitoring, uh, sort of building a model for the way we hear things and that we the way we interpret it. Language, you know, is the latest one, you know, now with the things like ChatGPT. So all of these are based on biology, and all of them are based on the way that our brain works. And given that we understand and actually have these models that actually outperform humans in these tasks, in visual object recognition, and the way that we hear, I mean, you could look. I don't want to say the magic A word by the company Amazon, but, you know, because I have one right behind me, but we've got one of those. We've got the Google Home Assistant. We've got Siri by Apple. We've got all of these things to do that. And we've got these models that work. So the way that that's going to work with things like Alzheimer's is that Alzheimer's is degradation of memory function. It's degradation um, not just of who we remember, but it's also some motor processes and other functions. What scientists and machine learning and AI people are working on today is that they are themselves working on 
basically those types of models today. Like they're working on memory models, they're working on motor function models and so forth. And the better that we get today, like you mentioned, it's not here exactly yet, but in five or in 10 years, the same things that revolutionized our ability to command and control, you know, these intelligent assistants that revolutionized the way for cars to see like humans can, will happen and are happening in those domain domains. And then finally, you know, the way that our brains interface in it, they're literally building devices. Neuralink is a company doing this from Elon Musk, but there are others in which these devices will be sort of biological, you know, ways of interfacing with our mind and potentially making it better in the in those specific ways biologically. That sounds incredible and miraculous, but it, it also it it's one of those things like social media when you look at um at kids and teenagers, well, even adults, you know, the way people are so attached to their phones, it's a bell you can't unring. So, you know, it, it seems phenomenal and amazing that someone who is diminishing will at some point, you know, possibly be made to seem whole and actually will be able to access things quicker than someone who is just purely biological material. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can even see this too, Kennedy, you know, coming, you know, even today in a different area, you know, like I, I think a lot about people with blindness, um, you know, and I think a lot about injuries, you know, related to eyes and things like that. We know enough about the visual cortex, you know, we know enough about the nerves that connect our, you know, the eyes, to the brain, we know enough about these things where they are actually today, you know, in some cases, basically able to restore partially or even, you know, better than partial, but it's just ridiculously expensive, kind of like everything else. And so thus hasn't been commercialized sight, you know, in people that have lost it. And I don't know if you've seen the meme, you know, online, you know, but I, one of these things I love is like the baby it's, it actually just came up the other day. I can't remember on Facebook or something else, but it came into my feed where it was like this little baby, you know, and and I've seen various versions of this, you know, different babies or whatever, but the baby has, you know, I don't know, cerebral palsy or has something like that, has trouble seeing, you know, and and uh, they put the they put glasses, you know, on the baby and then you get to, it just stops and then it looks around and it starts, you know, it's kind of sad in the, and then it's smiling, you know, because it sees like its mom for the first, you know, and I think about all those, you know, different things and the potential, you know, for that you know, to help, you know, and obviously you went to Alzheimer's and I'm talking about blindness, but there's just the next five to 10 years in what this is going to be able to do um, and the practicality of it, but just the life-changing, you know, positivity of it, I think far outweighs to any of the potential ba bad uses for it. Is the private sector better at innovating that than government-funded programs? Oh, hell yes. I mean, a thousand percent. And, and in some ways, in some ways, they're the right people to lead this lead this forward, but they're not necessarily the right people to regulate it. And, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of uh, toe the line here kind of on that. You hear people talk about, quote unquote, ethical AI. And what they're talking about there is, you know, to your point, you know, unringing the bell. Um, part of unringing the bell, um, you know, or my favorite, you know, Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, you know, we're pop culture here. That's what we do on Kennedy Saves the World is we're pop culture. So I got to do a Jurassic Park thing. You know, Ian Malcolm, you know, you stood on the shoulders of giants and you didn't ask whether you should. You just did. Right. You know, well, you know, 
related to AI, yeah, sure, they've collected all this training data. You know, a, let me back up. AI is a modeling process to make predictions, to sort things, to classify things, to fill gaps, to make numbers, all of these things. In order to make its predictions, modelings, numbers, sortings, it needs training data. Training data is, you know, like let's take the case of visual stuff, like a car that needs to drive itself. Might be, hey, you know, if you see a stop sign, stop. If you see a human, stop. You know, all of these things. One of the things they found out early on with smart cars and self-driving cars is they didn't show it enough people of color. They didn't show it enough um, people in wheelchairs. And you kind of want it to, you know, do things like stop when that happens. So there's bias sometimes uh, in the training data. Now, I'm not saying that's nefarious. As it turns out, all of these big internet companies, the challenge is that the data that they're training on is the data they've collected, or it's B2B data, or what they call web one or web two data. You know, it's company data, it's transaction data, you know, it's things, it's things like this, you know, it's, it's basically, um, you know, information that they've been collecting for a long time. And um, the challenge with that is that the bias that's sort of inherently in the training data is something that the companies don't always deal with. The, the other thing that there's bias, you know, in that we need to kind of look at is on the prediction end. And, and related to that is, you know, a lot of times, you know, and the weather is a great example of this. It's going to rain tomorrow. It's not going to rain. It's going to be cloudy. They never say, you know, kind of the probability that goes along with that particular prediction. They just say it is or it isn't. They make the prediction. Well, they could give us the confidence, you know, a lot with it. And a lot of times we need that because it's the difference between maybe, you know, identifying someone on some facial recognition and incarcerating them or, you know, picking the wrong person, uh, you know, for a crime, you know, and not. So all of these issues, and I'll just sort of wrap this long-winded answer up here, all of these issues related to, you know, the point for that companies and corporations aren't the right people to develop the necessary regulatory framework for dealing with that, but they are the right people to advance the needle in terms of the technology. Well, I think the needle right now is the most important part. And um, I have faith that whatever needs to be regulated, uh, hopefully the innovators will lead, the regulators will follow. And we're human beings. We're all biased in some way based on our genetics and our experiences. And people shouldn't be shamed for that. It's not a moral failing. It is it's a simple fact of existence. Um, and you know that that should be taken into account without so much judgment. But it, I think the future, the way you lay it out and the people who are working on it, it's incredibly exciting. You know, there there is technology that will save the world, that will save our family members, and that will hopefully enhance our human existence. There is. And um, I, Kennedy, I talk about it kind of like that a lot to people. I, I feel the same way as you. Like I, you notice I kind of, you know, a little defensive answered or defense ahead of answered, <laughs> you know, if that's a word ahead of answered, um, you know, by saying, it's not like the corporations intentionally held out, you know, some of this data or, you know, or things like that, or whatever. It's just, it's, it's part of almost the evolution of our human society. You know, I mean, you, you know, I think the world that you and I, you, you know, we can agree. I don't know. I think we're of like or similar age, you know, the world that you and I grew up in is rapidly changing and evolving and things like that. And believe it or not, like everybody expects the 
you know, the technology or the processes or the procedures for how to wield this stuff to kind of immediately be wherever, you know, the needle on whatever side of the aisle is. And the reality, it isn't, you know, like when we got cars, oh, great example, great example that maybe not everyone knows, but I got to pick a Southern California one for us, the 110 freeway, right? You know, where I, I live in Pasadena, you, you know, to get there from downtown everywhere else, you got to take the 110 freeway. Uh, my wife calls it the crazy freeway because it's it was the curves, built, right? The curves, right? It's the curves. And it was also built for cars that drove a heck of a lot slower, right? And, you know, the evolution from horse and buggies to these cars, and you see the first, you know, freeway developed, or, you know, I think it's that, or maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but it's one of the first freeways developed. It's this very thin winding curve, you know, thing, uh, you know, to get, and, and people drive like 80 on it, you know, now. And it's, yeah, it is a little scary, you know, doing that. And, so, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, it doesn't evolve as fast as the, like you said, the innovators or the people moving the needle, but that's okay. And I agree with you. I'm of the same mind. It's going to catch up. So. Well, I will be here for all of it. Uh, I, I look forward to talking to you again. I will always have questions in this arena as new technology develops there will be pearl clutchers who worry about our fate, but I, I actually, I think we're in pretty good hands. Dr. Chris Matman, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kennedy, anytime. And it was a pleasure. Brilliant beyond measure. This has been Kennedy Saves the World. I'm Kennedy. For more podcasts from my friends at Fox, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Oh, go ahead and leave me a review while you're there. I'd love to hear what you have to say. You've been listening to Kennedy Saves the World on the Fox News Podcast Network. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.